Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers, de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. And in this episode, I'm really excited uh, to be speaking with Abby Page. Abby is a poet, playwright, performer. She's done stand-up. She's done sketch comedy. She's appeared in a number of different productions. And she is the writer and performer of the show Peacework, When We Were French, which I've seen multiple times, and it is awesome. It is really great. So, Abby, thank you very much for joining the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm wondering if you're going to um, no. ask me to pronounce my name. <laughs> yours yours we might be able to handle we'll see there's been a few like obviously the bullyu was an issue patrick lacroix that was that was a fun one for me larue that was in juliana larue that was another one it took me a bit but i think yours i got so far yeah okay good what is your background where did you grow up uh, i grew up uh, in northern vermont just outside of burlington and uh, my family's been in Vermont for a very, very long time, many generations. The, the newest arrivals to Vermont would be my, my great-grandparents, my grandmother's parents, who came about 100 years ago from um, Belchasse County in Quebec. But I have French and English ancestors who have been in that area for a long time, and that's where I grew up. How big of an impact was the French-Canadian cultural identity in your life when you were growing up in, in Vermont? I always say I kind of grew up in a in a matriarchal culture um, because my sure. grandmother was my grandmother was really the head of our family and she considered herself French Canadian. She was born in Vermont, but she was Francophone. She didn't learn to speak English until she was about 12. So she really considered herself like a, a Quebecer who had been born outside of Quebec. We always sort of thought of ourselves as a French Canadian family, although she didn't teach any of her children French, so so she was actually the only, the, the last Francophone by the time I was around. But that was just sort of how we thought about, how we thought about ourselves or how we described ourselves. And I had, I just sort of took it for granted that that's what I was. And then in 2007, I married a, a Canadian, an, an English Canadian, actually, or not a French Canadian. And I moved to, <laughs> uh, to Quebec from Vermont. Uh, all of a sudden I was sort of confronted with the fact that I wasn't French Canadian because I was living amongst people who really were. And so I just had to kind of unpack what, what I had been, why I had been calling myself that for my whole life and what, what that really, what I had been playing at by calling myself that. Sure. And that's super interesting. From my perspective, I honestly, I didn't know the Vermont side the story. I'm from Manchester. You hear the Manchester story, you hear Woonsocket story, the Lowell, the Lewiston, but you don't really hear about French Canadian culture in Vermont. So this was kind of a, a new, a new introduction to, for me anyway. Yeah, well, we don't really have like, I mean, Burlington is the biggest city in Vermont, but it's not, I mean, I, it's bigger now, I guess, but when I was growing up, it was not a, an especially big city. And Vermont just never had like the big Milltown story that is sort of the predominant story about Franco-Americans in New England, I think. I think partly because it's a more rural state. And so a lot of the people who settled there settled in more kind of solitary situations where they weren't surrounded by other 
French Canadians who had immigrated or there were like there were mills and like my my grandmother and her mother both worked at a woolen mill in Johnson, Vermont. But it was a really small operation. It wasn't anything like um, the mills, you know, the mills on big rivers in in Maine and Massachusetts and New Hampshire. So it is different. But I, I think I think also one of the sort of stories or French Canadian stories of, of my family is that my my people have just always lived really close to the to the US Canada border. And so there were sure. French speakers who were living in Vermont for a long time. But yeah, they also don't really fit into that narrative of, of the like industrial revolution immigration into New England. What made you decide that you were going to dedicate a decent portion of your professional life to telling <laughs> the story of these Franco Americans? Well, the funny thing is that I was I was commissioned to write piecework when we were French. And I don't know if I really would have, if there would have been any other way that would have led me to make a solo show. It, it's really a form of performance that up to then I, I had pretty negative feelings about. I felt like I had seen it done really badly a lot. And I just wasn't really sure why anybody would do it other than to kind of make themselves the center of attention. And so I was, but I was invited to do it. Um, there was a there was a celebration in Burlington in 2009 of um, of sort of Samuel de Champlain the year after he founded the fort in Quebec City traveled down into the lake into Lake Champlain at, at that time it wasn't Lake Champlain but sure and uh, with a, a group of indigenous people who he was had sort of allied him allied himself with and they were actually a war party that was coming to attack people in Ticonderoga and they never actually stopped where Burlington is, but the city of Burlington used that date <laughs> as sort of a, <laughs> uh, um, an excuse to have a party. And it, the way it was framed was sort of the, the 400th anniversary of, of the beginning of sort of the meeting of cultures in the area in the Champlain Valley. So the, the English and the French and um, indigenous cultures. And so I was invited to, to make a show that would somehow honor or reflect the experience of the presence of French speakers in the Champlain Valley. And I really wasn't interested in making a show about myself. And, and as I said, at that time, I had just moved to Canada. And I was sort of working through this, like, well, I'm not even sure that that's what I am. So, for, so I used the opportunity essentially to talk with other people. I did a bunch of interviews with people um, with French Canadian background and talk to them about how they perceived themselves um, and what their family stories were. And people were just really generous with me, shared their family stories. And um, and I also was able to talk to people in my own family in, in greater detail about sort of their, you know, my, my grandmother was already gone, but I talked to a couple of her siblings about their upbringing. And, and so I was able to build the show around other people's stories. And it's, for me, was a process of, I, I mean, I sort of learned from them who I was. Which is super interesting. Of course, we're talking about piecework when we were French. You got to make sure to get the title out there as much as possible if I can, because everybody needs to go out and purchase it. It's super neat. And I got to say one thing that I thought was kind of cool for me uh, when I saw it, because it was it's very much a Vermont story. But this the characters that you portray and the stories that you tell, I think absolutely are going to ring true to anybody who grew up with a meme de Pepe. Because yeah. I was watching this, I was watching your performance and I was hearing some of the stories it reminded me of stories I heard absolutely growing up. And I saw some of these characters and I could pinpoint people that had come across, especially when I was a kid, that these characters absolutely reminded me of. And obviously that's growing up in Manchester. So I'm not, I'm not in Vermont, but it's just, it was a super neat experience for me. A couple of times I paused to be, I had, I had to take a time out 
to be like, that is insane how much that is going to connect with me because it reminds me of XYZ person. It was really, really cool. So you talk, you mentioned the interview process. Let's get to that a little bit because I think this is super fascinating. How many people did you actually sit down and interview and who who became a target? Who did you decide who you were going to talk to? It was maybe a dozen people. I mean, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, a massive undertaking. I mean, I started with a couple people in my family and that one of the really interesting things that happened during that process was that every person that I spoke to would refer me to somebody else who they felt sure. was more French than they were. <laughs> so they would sort of tell me all about themselves and their own family story. And then they would say, but you know, we're not really French anymore. So you should really talk to so-and-so because she does this thing and that's super French and she would be able to get <laughs> a better sense of, and then I would talk to that person and she would say, well, my sister is much more into this stuff than I am. And so you should talk to her. And it became like a chain where they were passing me along, continually referring me to someone who was more authentically French or French Canadian or Franco American than they were. And I also was really lucky. I worked with the Vermont Folklife Center, which is a sort of an oral history archive in Vermont. And it's not specifically focused on, on French Canadians, but they have done a lot of work on, um, especially on preserving Franco American music um, in the area. And so they, lent me recording equipment and also referred me to some people who, who were really generous and, and helpful. So, um, now, and the show is really about that, the, that the process of storytelling is kind of how we shape our idea of ourselves. <laughs> um, sure. I thought these people would be able to sort of explain to me what it meant to be French Canadian in the U S and, but instead, it was sort of like they were figuring it out as well as they were talking to me. I noticed during the performance itself, you actually played clips from some of these interviews. Yeah. Do these all your interviews you mentioned recording equipment, do they all exist somewhere? Like, is there like an archive that now keeps these? They are. They're they're at the at the Vermont Folklife Center. Yeah, they that was part of our deal. They gave me the recording equipment and then I gave them the recordings. And at the time, I worked with a really great sound designer who, God bless him, listened to everything that I recorded and then cut together those those sound bits that go in between the scenes in the show. And it really, for me as the performer, helped me to stay really grounded and connected to to the people who I had in my in my mind. Now, and how did you get through the process? We've done all these interviews one person play in which I played 10 different people that are not at all related to each other. And I'm just going to do it all in one act. How, how did that evolve to, to that finished product? Oh, boy. I mean, I wish I could. I wish I had some answer for that. That sounded really smart. Um, <laughs> I knew that I didn't really want like I didn't want anybody to feel exposed in the show. I didn't want anybody to feel like they were being imitated or sure. um, depicted exactly. So all of the characters I ended up with are sort of were sort of created by combining stories that felt like they could be could have been told by the same person. Nobody's exactly a, like one-to-one -one match with anybody who was interviewed, but there just ended up being certain themes that I wanted to wanted to portray. And so I would sort of meld together a few different stories that felt like they were related to that theme. I mean, I wanted somebody, you know, cooking ended up being a very major thing that people talked about in terms of a way that people sort of practiced culture. Sure. Um, and then language. Um, some people felt like they had a really, even if they didn't speak French or speak good French, they felt like a really warm, beautiful connection to it. And other people, actually the person, the only person who spoke French to me in an interview was the person who, who 
talked, who really spoke about it as though it was something that was not important to her and that it was, had been a negative thing in her past being. So yeah, I just sort of started to try to group together ideas and I wanted a mix of, of characters of different ages and characters who had, you know, positive or negative feelings or, you know, who maybe wanted to be more honest with the person who they're talking to, or maybe wanted to conceal more. So, so yeah, I just tried to sort of balance out the different ideas that I was trying to get across. And it was not, it was not, it was a very intuitive process and one that I really didn't trust at all until an audience had seen it and had a positive sure. response. And then I was like, oh, okay, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now I do need to talk about the title. So I think this is interesting. When I, the second time I watched this, I actually made sure to go over and watch it with my folks. And the title grabbed them right away. My mom had worked in a mill. She had done piecework. My pops worked in a shoe factory or shoe production place. And some of the people, he did not do piecework, but his co-workers did. And his co-workers depended on him getting his job done so they could get their money. So what is piecework? And how did you decide? To, why did you decide to make it the title of this show? Well, my grandmother did piecework. Um, my grandmother was a seamstress and she worked in a woolen mill. And uh, there are lots of different kinds of piecework, but essentially, uh, I think for in most cases, it was a kind of kind of work where you're not paid a salary, you're paid by the speed at which you can complete a task. So you were given uh, different pieces to assemble into a whole, and the faster you could do that assembly, the the more you would get paid. And then, generally, my sense is that the rule was, you know, if you if you once you broke a quota, then the quota the quota rose. You you never you could can get get ahead of the system reason why it ended up in the title is that I sort of see my own work (laughs) as part of the same process. And um, when I was undergoing this process that I was describing you before of trying to piece together these different stories, I, I was really struggling (laughs) at certain points. And uh, at one point I was in, I was in Vermont staying at my mom's house and sleeping in the basement. And I was sleeping under a quilt that my great grandmother made. And, um, and, I was really, I was feeling really uh, a lack of confidence about how I was doing, putting together these stories. And then I looked at this quilt that she had made, and it was just a patchwork quilt that she had made out of um, scraps of cloth. And so I, I just realized that she had made something out of, you know, cast-offs, essentially. That's awesome. And so I just sort of started to think about my own work in that same way. And, And I really still do. I still think of the idea that as a as a writer and a performer you can really you really start with nothing at some level sure and it's just about how you can put it together so I, I like to think about my work as sort of a continuation of the work that my ancestors did that's so cool now the 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 play or the the show the, the performance um it's the first dialogue is a prayer and it opens with a character who's like cleaning up a church and how I'm curious into your interactions, how much of that identity when you ask people about being French all of a sudden automatically clicks on a story dealing with the church? Yeah, a lot of people, you know, my parents' generation were educated in church schools, educated by nuns, and even people who weren't, that's a lot of a lot of their childhood associations or associations with family have to do with either attending church or sort of or spending holidays together, which were gen- generally associated with different, you know, events on the church calendar. And I think, I mean, I think that's part of what's really interesting about kind of the identity of 
French heritage people in New England, and at least in my experience, has, is that we have this sense of, uh, like, French isn't necessarily spoken so much anymore. Yeah, and yeah. people don't necessarily attend church so much anymore. Right, right. Um, but there, it is. There, but those things continue to be sort of resonant. <laughs> like I wasn't educated by nuns, but sure. Um, and I didn't even like I wasn't forced to attend church at the level that my parents were. But I feel very much like a Catholic person, the same way that I feel like a like when somebody in Canada asks me if I'm francophone, I don't really know how to answer the question. There's some echo that exists. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. So that was definitely something that everybody talked about. Now, something else that came up in with, with a couple different characters, it wasn't really harped on or focused on, but alluded to by multiple different characters in the performance was something that obviously I was exposed to growing up. The whole idea that um, drinking a lot was somehow a characteristic of being French. There was almost like, a yeah, it's just part of comes with being French is somebody who, who's a drinker. And mm-hmm. in, uh, in the fact that you even included that, I thought was cool because I, w- I was assume that people would be reluctant to even pass that on to some, to a stranger who's interviewing them about, you know, their French background. Yeah. Well, the way that I treated it is probably more direct than anybody treated it when they were talking to me. Sure. Um, lots of people had funny stories about something that somebody did when he was really drunk or, um, or there were also people who I interviewed who, who, I knew stories about their family that had right. to do with drinking. And I knew that those stories had been carefully avoided in the conversation. So it wasn't like it's something that wouldn't necessarily come across if you listen to the recording of the interview. But just for me, because I knew the person who I was talking to, there was like a an undercurrent of the unsaid through the whole thing. Yeah. And it's certainly a factor in my own family. I mean, in different I mean, both in terms of alcoholism and also just in terms of like a, yeah, just a culture of, of party. <laughs> right. Um, so sort of, a, you know, in both positive and negative connotations. Um, so I appreciate actually that you mentioned that because I think it's something that some people, it's sort of similarly to, there's a, there's a mention in the show of, of a woman who regretted having had children and yeah. somebody got really, really offended about that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to depict everybody and it's not, you know, it doesn't necessarily, if something doesn't resonate for you, it's not, it's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a lie. <laughs> right. No, of course. <laughs> I felt like, yeah, I felt like that was a really, actually a really important thing to include because I, I feel like it was a really um, central part, especially of sort of Franco masculinity, at least in the past. Sure. You did mention kind of like the positive fun side. Because a couple of things twice I can recall, uh, the term soiree or referring to a soiree came up. And, that, yeah. and I've talked to my, my mom, remembers going to them when she was a kid growing up. So, I mean, how present or how long did the whole soiree thing last up in Burlington? I don't know. I mean, when I was growing up, we, you know, I had a big family. My, um, my grandmother had six kids and uh, including my mom. And so there were you know, aunts and uncles and cousins around. And so we were always together, but we weren't really part of a, of a Franco community. Gotcha. So there, and there was a Franco community in Burlington and in Winooski, but that isn't where my family was. My, my mom 
moved down to Burlington when she had children, but her family was all from a, a small town up in, in Johnson, which was, there wasn't a French community. My grandmother grew up there and her family was the French family in town and there was an Italian family in town. And I think there might've been a Jewish family in town, but you know, there was not, it sure. wasn't like, um, they weren't surrounded by French Canadians. So I think the sense of soiree in, in my family was for my grandmother, when she would go visit her family in Quebec, there would definitely be soirees. Right. And there was also just like a broader kind of rural people party, sure. <laughs> which is related to soiree. I think in that, like there would be French there, like my, I know my grandparents used to go up to, up to the border, not necessarily across the border, but just near the border to go to dances. And a lot of the musicians would be from the other side of the border, you know? So, yeah, I partly think for, for the area where I grew up, that it was not so much of a, of an ethnic thing. As sure. A, a down should, kind of thing. I, don't know. <laughs> I should take a time out and kind of explain, because I, I know I'm going to get a question about this. If from somebody who may or may not have had any, any background whatsoever to soiree, what are we talking about? What was the soiree? That, what is that thing that people mention now? Part, the part of Canada where I live now, uh, they refer to kitchen parties. And kitchen parties are not, um, are not described as being French necessarily here. It's just like a party in a house. Everybody's singing and playing music and drinking and dancing. Yeah, and it would be it would be like an all night party, but it wouldn't be. It's not just for grown ups. It's everybody. That's my sense of it. What's your sense of it? Yeah, no, that, that's that's about right. My mom, she remembers going to eight nine years old, right, to some of these. And you show up, you better be prepared to do one of two things. You better play an instrument, or you better be singing, because right. that's what the expectation of everybody is. And like you said, it's just kind of like you get together and you entertain each other and just have a yeah. good time and party. Yeah, and that that still exists where you are. Because that's really neat if that's true. Uh, it does. I mean, I'm not. I'm not really involved in it with it because I'm not from here. So, but yeah, in in the Maritimes in Canada, it definitely is still a thing. And I would say among my cousins in Quebec, it's still a thing too. Like I know they get together and have big, you know, extended family parties. And there's there are microphones and amps involved. <laughs> like it's not the way that my family <laughs> my family parties anymore. My immediate family. So one thing I, I, I do need to touch upon, a super less fun topic, um, is the fact that um, a lot of the characters they kind of alluded to, again, if not full out mentioned, almost being ashamed of being French or being uh, reluctant to advertise that they were French. I mean, you have a character that, is, that changed the name. Um, you have the whole Chinese of the East that was obviously not meant as a compliment. And one of the things we talk about you know, here with my friends here that are of French Canadian descent, it's kind of like, um, you know, kind of what happened <laughs> in the last, you know, from the early 1960s to today, where we see less and less of the culture. And one of the topics that always comes up in my conversations anyway, is for a lot of people, um, they were ridiculed because of their French background. And I was curious, you know, how big of a presence that was for you in Vermont, too. Oh, I think, uh, I think very much. Yeah, I know that actually this was quite recently it was it was within the last 10 years my my great aunt described somebody coming to visit her who had grown up in the town where they grew up who said to her who was trying to pay her a compliment and said your family never seemed that french to me oh jeez and he he sort of went on to to like i think he could tell by her reaction that he had said something wrong and then he tried to <laughs> allow sure 
Yeah. And compared her family to a family that lived because her family, their family lived in the village and worked in the mill. And there was another French family that was sort of up on the hill outside the village that was that, who were farmers. And so he was comparing them to, to them because they, you know, maybe didn't have shoes. And, you know, they were right. like a really struggling hill farm French family. And so he was he was he was meaning to compare them favorably. And my aunt kicked him out of her house. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and I think I think even as recently as the 60s and 70s, like you were saying, it was it could be really hard to get a job if um, if if you if people knew who you were, they might think. I mean, there just there just were a lot of stereotypes. There were stereotypes both based on the fact that if you know if your first language was French, and um, or if you had an accent, that that meant you weren't intelligent. There were there were stereotypes about how hard you would work, which to me is really ridiculous because if there's one steady thing I feel like about French uh, French people, at least where I grew up, well, yeah, there's there's also an expression that says like to work, to work like a Frenchman, right? And yet they're also they're also sort of stereotyped as lazy. Uh, yeah, and I think people did have, people felt like they had to change their, well, I think some people felt like they had to change their names to be taken seriously. I don't know that everybody did. But I think, yeah, I think if you wanted to get to certain places, it was it was hard to get there with certain names. And certainly, I mean, my, my grandmother wasn't able to go to school until she was 12 years old because she didn't speak good enough English to attend school. That's crazy. So, and there weren't, where she was, there weren't, I mean, you know, in larger centers, there would have been French schools within right. the community, but where she was, it wasn't like that. So she just wasn't allowed in the school until she could speak English. Wow. Yeah. I know my folks went to, to school half the day in English, half the day in French. Mm. They were just, again, they were expected when they showed up to be able to flu be fluent in both languages. But I, I do want to go back um, to the title real quick, because obviously we talked about peace work, but then the, the second part is... Uh, when we were French, it's a past tense. Yeah. And if they're not French, if we aren't French, what what are we? What do they consider themselves? Is yeah. there, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think this is the question for like all people in the United States who are white, but are were once ethnic. <laughs> you know, like what kind of relationship do we have to our ancestors and how do we interpret that relationship in a positive way, um, in a way that's that's positive for us as individuals, but also that maybe like contributes something to Americanness that's more complicated than kind of just a pure melting pot kind of model. Because I wouldn't say that we're that we're not French anymore, but I like I said, it was a common theme in these interviews that everybody felt like they were not quite French enough to speak about being French. And I think that is sort of a chronic feeling among right. people who are a couple generations removed from maybe from from whoever the original immigrant was. There's a sense of like, I know, you know, I'm connected to this thing that happened. But in terms of the present tense, I don't really know what my relationship is to this thing. And I still feel that way. But I I still call myself. Well, now I call myself Franco-American. I wouldn't have done that if, before I started the, 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 writing that play. Which is actually, that's actually super interesting in itself that it changed the writing of this play, changed the way you even self-identify. That's cool. To me, that sounded super academic when I, when I started. I mean, that, that isn't really a term that's used so much in Vermont, maybe because there wasn't as much of a large community. People just called themselves French Canadian, but that's not really appropriate, I don't think. 
but I don't know how much labels matter anyway. I mean, um, we all have to kind of just define for ourselves what we are. Before we go, we got to make sure everybody understands. How do you get a hold of this DVD, a copy of this play? How can somebody get it? The show was a, it was a one person show and I toured it for a couple of years and that's really in my heart what it should be. It's yeah. like <laughs> and a group of people in a room together, but unfortunately I can't really manage to do that all the time. So, um, so I made the show available on DVD. There's a DVD recording of some performances that I did in Montpelier and uh, it, people can get it on my website, which is just abbypage.com. Yeah. Or if you Google piecework when we were French, you'll, you'll find me. <laughs> awesome. And now I understand we got a new project in the works. Yeah, I'm developing a new a new play. I've I've been in Canada for 10 years now, and so I'm sort of writing about some of the same themes but from a more personal perspective and from the perspective of somebody who's um moved back across the border, I guess. Yeah. And what I've I guess what I've learned from that and um if the first play is kind of about how we use stories to shape our identity, I think this play is maybe a little bit more about kind of what the dangers and pitfalls of that are, kind of how we can get trapped in the stories we tell ourselves about our identities and how, how if we can kind of broaden those stories, they can open us up to other, to other people and other experiences. But Interesting. That's, that's kind of a vague explanation. But. <laughs> well, what can we expect to see this performance? Well, I've the the play is mostly written, and I'm just doing. I'm going to be doing a few performances in New Brunswick this spring, um, and then I'm hoping to gradually sort of figure out how to bring it farther. <laughs> but gotcha. I, don't, I don't quite know yet, so that that is also a reason to check my website ongoingly for updates. <laughs> That's as I, it. As I figure out how to take the show on the road. Perfect. And we'll be sure to link your website for all our social media and all that stuff. Thank you so much. Again, we've been talking to Abby Page. Uh, so, yeah, thank you incredibly uh, much for uh, joining us uh, here on the podcast. This was awesome. I had a ton of fun. I had a great time when I got your DVD. Like I said, I watched it multiple times. I thought it was cool. I made sure I had to watch it with my folks. That was like a big deal. So to be able to talk to you, this is super neat. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for inviting me and for your interest, because really that's the only thing that makes my work my work worth it is when it lands somewhere and means something to somebody else. And, and when this new thing comes out, this new play is available, this new show, we got to have you back so we can oh, plug so the bejesus out of that one too. That'd be fun. Yeah, All right. I'd, I'd love to come to Manchester because I never made it there with um, with the other play. Yeah, well, we got we got to find a way to do that then. Yeah. I happen to know somebody on the board of the Franco-American Center there, so <laughs> we should be all right. Thank you very much. Not at all. Thank you, Jesse. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode. Malheureux.
This program is recorded at the Conquer TV podcasting studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Conquer TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.